I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, Jonathan? Doing all right. Excited to be with you, as always. Uh, Excited to jump into this episode tonight. And, as always, I have a really important question for you. What would you do in this particular situation? What would you be more likely to eat if you found it on the ground? A donut or a piece of fried chicken? I think I'm going to go donut, just because I love donuts. I also like fried chicken, but I love donuts. At my wedding, yeah. we didn't have a traditional cake. We had donuts. So That's true. I have, a, I have a true love for donuts. We have a lot of good memories with donuts, including, <laughs> including your wedding, of course, but also the time with our friend Jared that we got 19 donuts for the three of us and made pretty good progress on them in too short of amount of time. I got to go with donut, too. I do love fried chicken. Fried chicken is probably towards the top of my list in terms of favorite foods. But it just feels a little too risky to eat fried chicken that I found on the ground. (laughs) Donut on the ground, not great either. (laughs) But between the two, I'd got to go with donut. Yeah, somehow that does seem like a little cleaner. I don't know. Like, (laughs) is is it somehow like smoother that I think it will pick up less dirt? But, like, the fried chicken has so many ridges and crevices. Like, is that just, like, a breeding ground for all the germs that... A donut is usually covered with, literal glaze. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Neither of them are good, but I'm still going donut. This isn't exactly a parallel to our scripture, but I think you might see a relatively close connection. So why don't you go ahead and read this passage from Exodus for us. I would love to. This is Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 to 4, and verses 9 through 15 from the Common English Bible. The whole Israelite community complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, Oh, how we wish that the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by the pots cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us out into this desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to make bread rain down from the sky for you. The people will go out each day and gather just enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them to see whether or not they follow my instruction. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole Israelite community, Come near to the Lord, because he's heard your complaints. As Aaron spoke to the whole Israelite community, 
they turned to look toward the desert. And just then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses, I've heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, a flock of quail flew down and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the desert surface were thin flakes, as thin as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? They did not know what it was. Moses said to them, This is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So you've used the Common English Bible before, but what drew you to the Common English Bible this week? Yeah. I love revisiting these versions that we use often. And obviously the Common English Bible is one of our favorites, one of the ones we use most often. Here, though, I find the CEB really helpful when engaging a narrative, especially. Mm -hmm. Sometimes portions of the Bible can... When they're translated, they turn into run-on sentences or things that aren't, just aren't as easy to follow when you're thinking about it as a story. And I think one of the things the CEB does is it prioritizes more of a thought-for-thought thought or idea-for-idea idea translation rather than focusing on specific language. In its translation, it also prioritizes sentences that are readable. And so there's just something that's a little simpler, a little better flowing than some other translations might have. Uh, but you know that the CEB is one of my favorite translations, so it's hard to resist when we're picking <laughs> one for our episodes each week. But as you read through these verses, uh, the lectionary kind of splits up Exodus 16 a little strangely, but from the verses that we read for this week, what stood out to you? From the very beginning, the first thing that sticks out to me is their complaint. I mean, it seems a little strange. Okay, they're not getting enough food, and I certainly understand that you need food. But they were also, like, oppressed in Egypt, and they're on their way out. And now they're like, I'm pretty hungry. Guess I'll go back. This stinks. This journey's <laughs> terrible. Right. Like, I just wondered, like, I don't know, if it, if it isn't, like, rose-colored glasses that make mm. it seem like it was better back in Egypt. Yeah, thinking about those good old days. Yeah, remember Even those good, good old, old days, days when we were oppressed, but at least we had dinner? Like, Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things that when we think back on the Exodus narrative, it's one of the things that comes up, I think, pretty often is as Israel was being led out of Egypt, they're just constantly complaining about, why can't we go back? And, <laughs> and you know, a lot of uh, clergy especially look at that passage and be like, yeah, I know people like that too. <laughs> and because clergy ourselves, like we can never be like that. But <laughs> but complaining, as I think humans tend to do, complaining and longing for something that we knew or know and are familiar with versus the unknown and discomfort that we're in the midst of. At least you knew what you were in the midst of before. But sometimes the uncertainty of the situation can really, like you said, put on those rose-colored glasses to see things that weren't so great in a very different light. Did anything else stand out to you as you read through this? 
God recognizes these complaints sort of for what they are, right? The Lord speaks to Moses and says, I've heard these, I've heard the complaints. Like, I get it. I'm going to give them some food. Just the way that both God hears the complaints and responds to the complaint in a way that's not abstract. Like, right. actually addresses the complaint, at least seemingly like in its entirety, strikes me. Right. Yeah, it's very, it's not spiritualized. Well, in a sense, actually, I might correct myself on that because it is very tangible. There is food, there's this bread or this wafer, there's meat. Later in Exodus, I think, we hear about water as well, kind of a similar type of provision. But we also read here, and it's kind of the same theme that runs through the narrative of the 10 plagues, that... God offers these signs to see if the people will follow God's instructions and so that the people will know that God is God. That idea of knowing that God is God is central to that. I mean, that's the narrative underpinning all of the plagues is like, then Egypt will know that I am the Lord as God is kind of laying these things out to Moses, who then with Aaron is passing them on to Pharaoh you're you're spot on though that there is a really tangible response there and that the way that that's constructed i think is really interesting i have to find that connection back to the earlier parts of the exodus narrative really interesting Mm -hmm. too but before we get too much further because there's some other things i want to pick apart (laughs) i think some a little more background with the book because i don't think we've actually spent that much time in exodus maybe one or two other episodes i'm not sure But for a book that I know we both love a lot, we haven't spent that much time in it. Um, I got some help from one of my favorite resources, the Women's Bible Commentary commentator, Nyasha Jr., uh, who wrote a really solid reflection and commentary on the entire book of Exodus. She spells out really two key components to the construction of the book. The first 18 chapters, which is where our reading comes from tonight, are really narrative-based, introducing Moses and the people of Israel and their enslavement of e- in Egypt and their deliverance out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then starting in, verse, in chapter 19 through the end of the book, it's more so the story of establishing the Mosaic Covenant. It's where we see the Ten, Cam- Ten Commandments and the people and God are really spelling out the details of what it means for Israel to be God's people. So... Those, those are really the two main movements in the book. And here, it's really right kind of on the crux of that, that this story, it's just kind of transitioning. It's figuring out, okay, this God got us out of Egypt. What is this God going to do for us now? And you have this provision of food. There's just one, one example before they kind of get into the, the fine print of the, of the covenant, so to speak. <laughs> but Exodus is a really important narrative. It is really, I would say, a central narrative to the people of Israel and to the story of the Hebrew scriptures. There's a lot of strong connections in modern-day Judaism and a lot of liberation theology, the idea of a God who sets the captives free, and this narrative is so central. I know you know, but for our listeners, you can explore more on how historically the Exodus narrative might be questionable at best. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence, if any, 
that things happened as they're described at the time that they're described. But from a narrative standpoint, from a cultural and religious standpoint, this story and this concept is central to Israel's identity. And so for this central story to have these moments of complaint, these moments where (laughs) Israel doesn't come out looking too good, I think is so unique and interesting. But does any of that kind of maybe open up some other questions or things that come up for you about this passage? I just thought that kind of background would be helpful since we haven't explored this that much. It's helpful to think about what questions might we ask differently knowing that the Exodus narrative didn't happen the way that it's portrayed in the text. So like maybe instead of just asking like what happened, we might ask like, well, why would Israel tell the story about themselves in this way? Like, why would you put your own complaints in the story? Like usually yeah. when you tell a story about yourself, <laughs> like you, you come off looking like at least like pretty good in the story. Exactly. But here yeah. it's like, the fish they, is always that much bigger than you caught it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, exactly. This and a lot of scholars say the same things and ask the same questions about the disciples in the gospels too. Like if they were connected to those writings, which a lot of a lot of people assume that they are in some way, why do they always come out looking so bad and so <laughs> so just ignorant and unaware of what's going on? But there's also I think there's something there that kind of underscores the value of the narrative and for the people, like, this is where we were and look where God has has brought us. I think another place that the dynamic is coming up is the idea of manna in this story, where they name this miracle bread that comes from heaven. It is truly kind of just an expression of, what is this? Yeah. You know, it's, and, and it takes yeah. on that name because they ask the question, what is it? We don't know what it is. You might as well call it, I feel like the equivalent is like us just saying we don't know what it is. It's just a like a doohickey or a thingamajig, yeah. like that kind of nonsense where we connect these other words and mash them together to come up with something else that just means something entirely different. Uh, and that's that's a really interesting part of the narrative in, in the Hebrew, too, is that they just ask the question, what? And then that word, what? is basically what it's called <laughs> for the rest of the story, which I think is hilarious. But again, another, you know, another opportunity, especially in other points of the narrative, we're like, this is why this thing is named this particular, this place is named this particular thing. It's this really meaningful historical connection for their people. And here they're just like, we didn't know what it is. So we just called it what? <laughs> and that, I don't know. That that plays into that dynamic too. I think the question that you brought up, like what questions can we ask differently? That's actually I think where we might be going in this conversation because there's one moment in this passage that I hadn't noticed before that I think is really mm-hmm. relevant for us as we think about who we are as teachers and ministers for ourselves, but also as we think about our calling in general as as believers even if we may not be called to ordain ministry. But before we go there, was there anything else that stood out to you from the text? I don't think so. I think I'm ready to talk about our next our next segment. Why okay. might Israel tell this story about themselves? This is like a yeah. it's our same second half 
with like a more specific question. Yeah. So we're moving, shifting from what's the story here to what's the point or what's a point of this passage. And the moment that I wanted to point out to you, Seth, was actually back in verse 10. It says, as Aaron spoke to the whole Israelite community, they turned to look toward the desert and just then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And in the narrative, that appearance is for God to continue offering the people instructions. And where you know Aaron and Moses had been kind of acting as God's mouthpieces with Pharaoh, with the people, there's still this closeness that happens where God's mm-hmm. speaking to Moses and Aaron and then, then speaking to the to the people is happening in closer proximity. Hmm. But I thought about that moment and I'm looking at it with a particular lens. I know that, but I thought about that moment and really related it to the idea of kind of, of teaching and preaching of in, encountering the word in, in, in different ways. It doesn't have to be through a homily on a Sunday, but even in what we do now and kind of thinking about what the purpose of, our teaching is because so often we can get caught up. I know we're guilty of this, of getting caught up in the technical details of, of our, (laughs) you know, of, of the biblical text. But Aaron apparently had a really significant responsibility because when he proclaimed God's word in the narrative, the literal words of God, you know, passing on this message that God had given to Moses, when he taught, God's presence literally became known among the people. That activity of teaching, of communicating in that regard brought the people and God closer together in the story. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the kind of question that we can ask when we stop focusing on the literal or historical details or try to fit this story into an archaeological record that doesn't have the evidence to back up the things that happened in a historical sense from how we define historical today and start instead thinking about what is it that Israel as a community is trying to remember, trying to teach, and thinking about that moment when Aaron was telling them about the bread and then God came and was with them. Mm -hmm. That moment, I'd never noticed that before. I've count. I mean, how many times have you encountered this passage? That just stuck out to me this time. So I guess what what does that what does that bring up for you? What do you think about that connection between teaching and God's presence? Seeing that in this passage, and you know, starting to think about what that might mean for us now. Well, I'm thinking from my my kind of own Lutheran perspective, and I'd love to hear both how this like connects and doesn't connect with with yours as a Methodist. Um, but in Lutheranism, like one of the ways that God comes to people is via the the preaching of the word. It's not just like some abstract way, but that even in the in the preaching of the word, like God's presence is definitely there. Um, so one of the the critiques of Lutheranism, if I can say it that way, is that they accuse Luther of not transubstantiating the the bread at communion, but instead transubstantiating the sermon. In preaching, God becomes active and there and with 
the people. But somehow, to me, that's what I see happening in the story. It's like yeah. Aaron's, Aaron's proclaiming this to the Israelites, and then the, the cloud with God's presence is rolling in. Yeah, and I think in our, in our tradition, I, I think our understandings of the sacraments are like adjacent to each other, and there's some reflections and echoes within each other. There might be some specifics that we would hammer out that probably wouldn't interest most people other than us. <laughs> but I think I love the definition of sacramental theology that I, I gleaned during my time at Wesley which is the idea that a sacrament is God giving God's self to us through some created means. We talk about in the church that primarily being, you know, the two sacraments we identify are baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. But I think there are a lot of ways that we kind of expand that sacramental theology. There's room for that, you know, to think about some of the other things, like you've said, that have traditionally been considered sacramental and how God might be made known among us through this, even if it's not as tangible a created thing, something else that's created. But I, I feel really similarly to you about, about preaching. It can provide something real and tangible. But I also think it's one of the avenues of doing that where we can get in the way a lot too i love this this partnership that moses and aaron have too i think there's something there also that uh, ministers can learn like moses gets the message and he's like okay aaron you tell them this like there's right. some sort of delegating right it's not just like okay i'm gonna do it all all myself i'll get the message i'll broadcast it via the megaphone like right there's something there that's also like really healthy, I think. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a theme in Exodus as well. I mean, there's the story of Jethro coming, Moses' yeah. father-in-law <laughs> coming and saying, you're doing too much. You've got to find some other people to figure it out. And it's an important model, again, for thinking about ministry leadership. The other thing I'm thinking about, though, you know, I'm thinking about this for us, Seth, as people on the way, hopefully and prayerfully, to ordained ministry in our traditions like i think this means something for us mm -hmm. but i also think we need to be mindful of how this might come across to someone who doesn't feel called to preaching and teaching and what what we can understand our own calling to be the calling that we all share as people who are people who are baptized who share the share the identity markers of the people of god and what this story could then mean, either if it's this moment about preaching and teaching, or if it's something else in this story where we can identify, hey, how is God, how is God becoming made known and present as we are on our own journey towards our calling, even if it's not a calling to preach and proclaim the word, you know, if it's a calling to be God's people, how is God providing that bread? How is God providing the meat? Again, connecting to our story from last week, too, about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Like, where is God nurturing and sustaining and providing for us to continue the work of ministry that we all share, not just those who feel called to ordain ministry or to preaching and teaching? Yeah, sometimes I think the church likes to have a monopoly on the way that 
not just people preach and teach, but even the way that they serve, like the way mm-hmm. that they, they proclaim the good news, right? That they like do evangelism. For example, I'll just speak to my own context. The church that I grew up going to has a basketball team. And I think that that's fine. But I also think there are lots of community basketball teams that people could play on and that they could play on those teams and and make new connections and like witness in that way. They don't have to do it under the guise of the St. Matthew Evangelical Lutheran Church men's basketball team. Right. But the church is like, no, I think we should have our own basketball team. It pulls things into the church that can be part of the church, but I think don't always have to be part of the church. I mean, I'm particularly biased in this direction as a deacon, but I do think that one of the most powerful ways that we can equip all of the people who consider themselves God's people is to consider how can you be sacramental? How can you make God's grace and love tangible and known in your everyday? That is sacramental work. That is the work of proclaiming God's good news in a way that makes God real and tangible. And I could think of, I mean, are there other examples that you think of of coming to mind of people doing that proclaiming work in a different setting? I went to seminary with this man who's, he's not Lutheran. Um, It's from like an interdenominational church background. Uh, But he would like go to the town laundromat in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And he would basically just like hang out with, with kids and families who were there. And he would literally bring activities for them to do. Like his, his idea was just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just like sit here and like tell them about Jesus. They don't really want to hear that. Like I'm going to do activities with them. And then when they connect with me and they ask me things about like, what do you do? Why are you here? That's my opportunity to tell them. Um, but that's such like a different context than preaching and proclaiming from the pulpit. Like he used kind of just like being with people at the laundromat as they waited for their clothes to wash and dry. And they had all this free time to just sit there. He used that time just to be with people. I, thought that, I still think that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. That that example, it just feels it feels almost too perfect. Like, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. The commitment to making God's love known in a way that is open and inviting and not imposing, non-judgmental. There's so many ways and so many avenues that they can... Like, you can see that happening on the sidewalk. You can see it happening at the laundromat. I know a lot of people who make it so in the boardroom or mm-hmm. in in a team meeting or something like that. Like wherever their setting is, there are ways to proclaim good news. Good news of food, of provision from heaven, good news of unending, unconditional love. There are ways to do that that make God known. And it doesn't just have to be after you exegeted a text, after you developed, you know, got your three points and an <laughs> illustration. It doesn't have to be after, for you in the Lutheran tradition, after eight to 12 minutes for your homily. <laughs> it can be in so many different settings. And I think this passage invites us to consider not 
man, how did the logistics of how did God turn dew into bread? But instead consider, wow, look at the unique ways that God became known in Israel's midst in a way they'd never seen before. How can we consider a way to do that now and do that today? Those are the kinds of questions, like you said, Seth, that we can start asking that Exodus allows us to explore and helps us pour over and freely the work of the Spirit in our communities and with our neighbors. I feel like we got to pray. I know. <laughs> we do. That's always a good, it's a good place to start and it's a good way to end our episodes too. So will you pray with me? I would love to. Right. Let's pray. Providing one, you have told us that to whom much is given, much is expected. As we all pursue our callings, whether we are on our way to ordination or on our way to or from the baptismal font, give us courage, shape our character, and keep us connected. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're going to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 25 through chapter 5, 2. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. Bye.